once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. How do you identify yourself? By location, gender, race, history, nationality, language, education, sexuality, ethnicity, aesthetics? How about food? All of that pales when we consider our identity in and with Christ. Hayes Cargo, assistant pastor at Brookhaven Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia, continues the series The Church, Aspects of the Christian Community, with this message entitled, A Community Connected by a Common Identity, which covers 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. Thank you for joining us today. Now it's my privilege to introduce Hayes Cargo. The name Cargo is not unfamiliar around here, and that uh, Bob Cargo... Uh, is on our teaching team, has been a part of this ministry uh, from its earliest days. Uh, give you a little story to help you understand. When we started the church, we did something unique, probably never done, at least we don't know of a story of any churches who had ever done this at that time. We were one church in four locations as we built out the first six or seven years. And so uh, one of the locations happened to be called In Town. It was the third of our four congregations that we birthed, and uh, in doing so, uh, we called a man, Bob Cargo, uh, who lived a couple of doors down from me in my hometown growing up, and we've known each other for years, and so he came to pastor as an associate or assistant pastor to our church, the in-town congregation. All of this effort, the four congregations, was to launch a church planting movement, And uh, some of you might be aware that uh, recently Perimeter Church was identified as the fourth most reproductive church in America. And and this was the beginning of it as we started these congregations. And what we're doing is we're taking anyone who's been in this church where they're in one of those four congregations, or at least some of the guys that were in the four congregations uh, throughout the years of this church now, uh, we're, while we were one church, we are now looking at uh, bringing those young leaders back. We always do a young leader series each summer, and it's become very popular. We said, let's, uh, let's get some of our own homegrown leaders. And so this year, we're having the privilege to do just that. If you're here last week, you know uh, what a great job Andy Nelson did. And this week, we have, we have Hayes. And I'll tell you this. I'll say it at the end again. Outstanding message. And it's one very, very, very relevant to us. I think you're going to find this to be a great blessing. Um, So, Hayes, come up. Let me pray for you. And uh, we are thankful for your ministry. Uh, You can read a little bit of the detail, his bio, but uh, quickly his bio is simply this. He uh, came here, as Bob did, to be a part of our church and was in our youth ministry here. And then uh, went on to the University of Georgia. After Georgia, he went on a two-year stint with uh, Crew Campus Crusade for Christ. Then went to seminary at, uh, um, in St. Louis at Covenant Theological Seminary. Now he's at the Brookhaven Church that I prayed for. He's assistant pastor there. I had an opportunity of hearing him preach over the Christmas time when I was, uh, had a week I wasn't preaching. And I went down to one of, I like to go around to some of our plants and saw what was happening there. And he had a great sermon then. You're going to be blessed today. Let me pray for you, okay? Father, thank you for the Cargo family. Thank you for Hayes and the way you've raised him up and using him in such a significant way. Thank you for his great insights into your truth and particularly as they apply to us on this day. Give us hearts to hear and to embrace this truth. Lord, drive it home to us to say, God, what would this say to me individually? So we're grateful. Use him, we pray. 
and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Randy, for that very kind introduction. It's a great honor to be introduced by the man who baptized me as a baby, a a father in the faith. And uh, it's a great, great honor to be here at Perimeter, a church that has had uh, just such an unbelievable impact on my life, so influential I can really hardly describe it. And it's a great honor to be alongside the other preachers who have been invited to be a part of this series. I've known all four of these other guys for quite a while now. Matthew Terrell, who uh, you just saw on the screen a minute ago, he and I grew up together at InTown, known him my whole life, and he has a younger brother my age. So I literally could not even guess how many hours I spent in the Terrell household growing up. The other three guys that are in the series, we all got to know each other, or I got to know them at least in high school. We were all a part of the student ministry here at the same time, overlapped, and through gold rush and mission trips and all these different things, built friendships at that point, and our lives just continue to intersect. Some of us were at UGA together, and some were at Covenant Seminary together, and now we're scattered about, um, and it's just, it's an honor to be alongside them guys that I appreciate their friendship and uh, admire them in so many ways. And this week, as I've been reflecting some on these relationships, on my relationships to the other guys in this series and my relationships with many of you, so many uh, just dear friends and family friends here at Perimeter, not to mention people I'm still connected to at InTown and now at Brookhaven Prez where I work. And I've realized that in many ways, all of those relationships, all of those connections are the best illustration I could possibly give for what I'm preaching on this morning, which is the fact that the church is a community that's connected by a common identity. And so it's true in those friendships with these other guys that I've had for 10, 20 more years now. And it's true with so many people here that I have such affection for, though I don't get to see you all that often. I believe it's true for as, as why that so many of you have invested uh, in my life in so many different ways is this reality, this very real reality that as the church, we are connected to one another primarily by a common identity. And we see this really run all throughout scripture. This is an idea that's seen beginning to end. But this morning, we're going to look at it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And you can look there. Before we read the text, though, I want to give you just a little bit of context because we're just dropping down, not just into the middle of the book, but right into the middle of this chapter. The book of 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth. And Paul had planted this church. He had pastored it for a brief period. But then he had moved on, and by the time he writes this letter, he's somewhere else in his missionary journeys, but he writes back to the church at Corinth because they are a struggling church, a church full of problems. And so throughout the book, Paul is addressing one thing after another, these issues they're having, and he's encouraging and exhorting and rebuking, doing all the things that he needs to do. And then when we get here to chapter 7, there's actually a bit of a transition that happens in the book or in Paul's letter. In 7.1, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote... And what we gather from that is that he's now answering some questions. The Corinthians have sent him some, some things that they're disagreeing about that they're not straight on, and so they want his input. And the first thing on the docket for the Corinthians is a question about marriage. The question is, for those who are unmarried, should they pursue marriage? Should they stay single? Even apparently they were debating for those who are married uh, to a, a believer or especially to an unbeliever, should they remain married or should they end that marriage, get out of that marriage? There was just widespread confusion and so in this chapter, Paul addresses every marital scenario that a Christian could ever find themselves in. He addresses being married to another believer as well as being married to someone who's not a believer. He addresses all forms of singleness, those who have never been married, those who have been divorced, and those who have been widowed. And he addresses those who are, who are engaged. 
And so he kind of runs the gamut. He addresses each one specifically. But here in the middle of the chapter, we get kind of the main idea, the chunk of the chapter that applies to everybody across the board. And so if you'll read along with me, we're, like I said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Read along with me, and then we'll pray. The word of the Lord through Paul, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. What a gracious gift that you would reveal yourself to us, your people, in your very word. More than that, that you would reveal yourself to us in your son, the word made flesh, who allows us to have a relationship with you and restores our relationships with one another. Lord, we ask that you would use your word now by the power of your spirit. Use it to convict us, to lead us to repentance, to transform our hearts, to to create newness of life. Lord, we ask that everything that happens now would be glorifying to you and that it would be edifying to your people. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen. As Randy said just a few minutes ago, I'm now working in Brookhaven at a church plant called Brookhaven Presbyterian. And in that community, I spend the majority of my time with our, our, uh, I guess the best word would be our young professionals community. The general profile of these folks is they're two to three years out of college. Most are not married yet. Most are doing quite well early on in their careers. They're competent. They're intelligent. They're highly motivated. And in spite of all these things, the more time I spend with these folks, the more I realize that on the whole, they are feeling completely lost in the world. They are asking all the big questions, and the main one they're asking is, who am I? Or to phrase it another way, what is my identity? And I've realized the more, the more I have this conversation with people, the more I realize that the, there's an underlying assumption that the answer to that question must be something external, something visible. And we're a generation that's really bought into this idea of Um, autonomy and kind of self-realization. And so we kind of live by this mantra of like, whatever you want to be, just go be it. And so people are trying to figure out, well, what am I and how do I become it? And it's interesting for those who are asking those questions and looking for answers, Paul's message here is very pertinent, but it's an unexpected answer because Paul's answer to those questions would be, you need to be content to stay in the situation where God has placed you Because your identity is not primarily found in any of these individualized, visible, outward statuses, any of these outward characteristics. And in the passage, Paul makes this point three times. He says it right up front in the very first verse. He says it again in verse 20 and again in the last verse. You don't have to be a literary scholar to know that when the author says it in the introduction and in the middle and at the end, that's the main idea. And so... He sees, or he gives us this principle, but then he, in the passage, he kind of unrolls it for us with three specific applications. And the first one is that Paul's saying that our identity is not primarily found in our marital or sexual status. 
And that's not really clear in these eight verses, but again, in the context of when he's addressing all these particular groups, this is really the main idea of the passage. And the other two are kind of tangents that come off of it. And this would have been difficult for the Corinthians to believe. That's evident from the fact that they were having this debate. They couldn't agree about these things. It's also quite difficult for us to believe because we live in a cultural time where to be fully human, we just assume an essential part of that is the experience of love. To love and to be loved is just, we believe, so central. And it is in many ways. And in the broader culture, what we see is more and more this is becoming detached from the institution of marriage. That to experience love no longer really requires marriage in people's mindset. But the important thing is just that you have the experience of love and that you get to express it however you want to. Within the church, rightly so, there's still a great emphasis on marriage because of the reasons that God gave it to us. But I'll tell you one of the unfortunate things that happens sometimes within the church as we, try to, as we try to uphold marriage for all that it is, is we sometimes end up communicating to those who are unmarried that you're a bit of a second-class citizen, that it's okay and you can kind of still be a part of us, but the church is really for married people and really for families, and you can kind of hang out until you catch up. And Paul says, absolutely, that is not true. That in none of those circumstances are we primarily defined by those things. Paul would say, you're not defined by your spouse, by the happiness of your marriage, by your singleness and desire for a spouse, by a failed marriage, if you've had a failed marriage, by your sexual experience, by your sexual fulfillment, lack thereof. None of those things is primarily defining for you. Secondly, though, Paul says that we're also not primarily defined by our ethnic status. You may not have caught that on the first reading, but that's what all the circumcision talk is about. And in all that talk, what Paul's referencing is that in an ancient city like Corinth, the majority of people were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. And in that same city, though, because Jews had kind of scattered from Jerusalem all over the ancient world, there there would be a good number of Jews. And oftentimes they were subject to persecution or discrimination. And so apparently sometimes Jewish men would actually undergo a procedure in which they would seek to reverse the effects of circumcision to when they were out in the public baths or wherever they were to hide the fact that they were Jewish. But it's funny, apparently on the other end of the spectrum, as there were Gentiles who were coming into the church that had a a Jewish foundation and probably predominantly Jewish people, there were apparently some who were saying, well, if you want to be a part of us, if you want to be a part of the church, then you need to take on this sign of circumcision. And Paul's message here is these things don't ultimately define you. Jew or Gentile does not ultimately define you. And a lot of that may be kind of lost on us, seem pretty bizarre. In fact, some of us, if we're honest, may say, well, in 2015, in a fairly progressive city like Atlanta, surely no one's defined by their ethnicity anymore, right? No one's primarily defined by it. But if you would think that, I would say, you know, just think about the major national headlines over the last year. How many of them reveal that, in fact, many people do feel very defined by their ethnic identity? And I would say, if you personally have a hard time believing that's true, or if you personally don't feel as if you're defined by your ethnic identity, then that's probably a sign that you're a part of the dominant culture. Because one of the privileges of being in the dominant culture is that you don't have to feel defined by it. You, feel, you have the freedom to, to be defined by other things. But if you think that that's the case for everyone, I would encourage you, talk to a friend, to someone you know that's part of an ethnic minority. And I'm almost positive they would tell you, yes, there are times that in my own eyes or in the eyes of others, I feel defined by my ethnicity. And Paul says that ethnicity is not bad. There's good reasons that we're different, but it does not ultimately define us. Thirdly, Paul says that we are not ultimately defined by our socioeconomic status. 
Paul talks here about those who are free and those who are bond servants. And in scripture, it can be a little bit uncomfortable for us when Paul doesn't seem uh, quite opposed enough to the idea that someone would be the servant of someone else. But I would encourage you if that is worrisome, you read the book of Philemon and you'll see Paul was very subversive to the institution of any form of slavery. But what he's addressing is the reality in Corinth that there are people there who have power and resources and there's other people there who do not have power and resources. And that's obviously transferable for us as well. The reality is that in fact, in our, in our setting, in our culture, the gap only continues to widen between the haves and the have-nots. And as the gap in the middle gets bigger and bigger, it only becomes easier and easier for us to associate ourselves with one end of the spectrum or, or the other. We either find our identity in our wealth and what we have, or we find our identity in what we don't have. And again, Paul says, this is not where your primary identity is found. And so in the context of this chapter, it's like Paul is saying to the Corinthians and saying to us, look, if you're, fi- if you're looking to these things for your identity, if you're looking to define yourself with this kind of status, if you're looking to these visible individual characteristics, then your scope is too small. Your perspective has become too narrow. And what you need to do is you need to zoom out so that you can see things more clearly. Of course, we may be asking the question that the Corinthians likely asked too, which was, well, if we don't find our identity here, then where do we find it? And the answer to that question is not really clear in these eight verses we read. But there's one word there that's kind of a hint because it taps into a theme that runs throughout the whole letter. The answer to that question, according to Paul in all of 1 Corinthians, is that our ultimate identity is found in the fact that we are part of the communal people of God, that we are part of this redeemed family of God. And like I said, this theme runs literally beginning to end in Paul's letter. It's the reason that he tells them they shouldn't be divided. They shouldn't say, well, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. They shouldn't be divided on little minor theological issues. They shouldn't take one another to court. They shouldn't come to the Lord's Supper, which is a family meal with division between them. And so over and over and over again in 1 Corinthians, it's like Paul is pleading with them. He says, it's like he's saying to them, look, if you belong to Christ, then you belong to each other. If you've been adopted as sons and daughters of God, then that means that you have now become brothers and sisters to one another. So all throughout the book, he kind of drops these hints like he does here when he refers to them as brothers. It's a reminder to say, don't forget you're one. Now, if you kind of keep following that train of thought, if the first question is, well, you know, what do we find our identity in? If the answer is that it's in this being part of the redeemed family of God, then the second question is, well, then how did that happen? How is it that people who are Jew and Gentile and married and unmarried and rich and poor, how could all those people be a part of one family? And the simple answer is that it is only possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is only possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because without Christ, we are left trying to just figure out who we are with no real sense of where our own identity lies, trying to figure out kind of what we should hitch our wagon to, what's going to define us, how to become whatever, we, that, whatever it is that we want to be. We have no understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God and therefore made for a relationship with him and equally important to be made for a certain kind of relationships with one another. And so in light of all this, what we see is that the transformation of our identity takes place through the death and resurrection of Christ. Specifically, that as Christ takes on our sin onto him and in place of it gives us his righteousness, that we become first sons and daughters of the Most High, but secondly, and equally important, that we become brothers and sisters to one another. Not just brothers and sisters to the people here in this room, but to believers all throughout the world and all throughout history. 
And I'll tell you, this has never become more clear to me than when Sally and I moved to St. Louis for me to begin seminary there. We moved to St. Louis in the summer of 2011, and we were moving uh, way far away from all of our family, really far away from all of our friends. I don't think we were close to anyone that lived in all the Midwest, much less St. Louis. So we felt really detached, really alone. And when we got there, it was felt all the more pressing for us to become connected to a church and connected to people there so that we would have community, so that we would have someone to share life with. And so we started going to a church that was just about a mile from our house. And in the first few weeks, we started going to a community group. And I'll never forget the first time or two that we were there, I thought, you know, I don't really know if this is going to be the group for us. Because this group, people are spread out in all different ages and stages. There's people, you know, from all different walks of life. And there's really only maybe one or two other guys or one or two other couples that are kind of in our stage of life. But what I came to experience over time as we were in that group over several years was that body of believers, that small group of people became in a very real sense a spiritual family for us. And what I came to experience was that the fact that we were so different from different walks of life, working in different careers, different ages and stages, from empty nesters who'd been married over 40 years to young singles in their 20s and everything in between, was that we could actually love one another, care for one another, serve one another, teach one another far better in our differences than we could if we had all been the same. It was a powerful experience. And I, I think when we experienced that, what we experienced was very aligned with what Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to. The fact that if we're really one family, if we're really now brothers and sisters with one another, then it leads us to live our lives quite differently. And I think we see this in two specific ways. First, I think the fact that we find our identity in part of being this family of God, it leads us to share our lives with one another intergenerationally. And that's kind of a a big word and I'm using it even a little bit loosely. I basically just mean we can share life with people in other ages and stages different than us. Because the reality is that we need the community of other people whose lives do not look exactly like ours to help protect us from starting to place our identity in our age and stage. If we surround ourselves with people whose lives look just like us, then it becomes easier and easier to make that our identity. And this has become especially clear to me in the last few years. I've had really a a great privilege of having several friends who've been quite open with me about their experience of having same-sex attraction. And their experience of trying to square the feelings that they have with what they believe the Bible says to be true about sexuality and about marriage. And very courageously, they've tried to make these two things meet. And the conclusion that these several friends have come to in the midst of a cultural current, a very strong cultural current that would say, well, if you have these feelings, then that very much defines who you are as a person. And if this defines you, then you must feel free to act on these And looking at scripture, they've actually gone the opposite direction where they've said, you know, as I examine God's word, I've come to the conclusion that I don't believe these desires are aligned with God's design and God's purposes. And because they don't seem to align with God's design and God's purposes, then I don't have to be defined by them. They don't define who I am as a person. And if they don't define who I am as a person, then I don't have to act on them. And as they've come to this conclusion, I think it would make sense to most of us that part of it for them is they've realized, and I've heard them say, that the only way to actually live this out, they believe it to be true, but the only way to live it out is in the community of God's people. To do it alone would be a lost cause. And even to do it with just a few other people who are, you know, maybe other young singles would not be wise. 
What they need is the full body of Christ to come around them, to become, in a sense, like a surrogate family, spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews because of the fact that they'll likely be unmarried and celibate. And so I think we can understand, well, if someone who might be unmarried and celibate for their life, well, of course they would need community. But do you know who needs that community every bit as much? Married people and parents who come to the realization that this is a great role that God has placed me in, but it does not ultimately define me. And the way that I can be sure it doesn't start to define me is if I begin to share life with people who are not married and people who do not have children, who will remind me in a sense of who I am in Christ. It's true for those who are single who would say, I I really don't wanna be defined by my desire for a spouse. And I would encourage you, then begin to share life broadly with all different kinds of people who would remind you of that. It's especially true as I've thought about this idea of the people of God as this kind of family in the church. I've become so, so thankful for families I know who have been, their families have been broken by divorce and yet they've remained a part of the church. I'm astounded at your courage that families would go through that experience and commit themselves to being here within the body of God's people week after week after week where you know without a doubt more than anywhere else you go, you will be surrounded by families that at least on the outside appear to have it all together. Couples who look happily married and children who haven't gone through the trauma of having one parent leave the home. And I just want you to know that speaking, if I can, on behalf of the church, thank you for staying in community with us. Because the reality is that we need you every bit as much as you might need us. So that's the first way that we that being a part of this family kind of changes how we live. The second way, not only do we start living intergenerationally, but we start living cross-culturally as well. And this is kind of a mix of the ethnic and the socioeconomic dynamics I was talking about earlier, because the reality is cultural lines kind of break every which way. As many ways as you can think, you can divide culture like that. But what the gospel frees us to do is to begin sharing life across all of those lines. It's worth noting here that in the Corinthian church, apparently there were Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. Groups of people that historically did not get along. But when Paul came, he didn't plant a Jewish church and a Gentile church. They began to worship together and work it out as difficult as it may have been. And we see all throughout scripture that God's design is that he's drawing to himself people from every nation and tribe and tongue and people group we can imagine to worship him and not just to do it one day in heaven, but to begin to do it now. I'll tell you again, my own personal experience of this, when we were in that community group in St. Louis, I was thankful for a lot of the friendships we developed, but the one that I might've been most thankful for was my friendship with a guy named Justin. Justin and I could not come from more different backgrounds. As I was growing up here in Atlanta and going to Northview High School and spending my time here at Perimeter as a high schooler and then off to UGA and off eventually to seminary, and some of those very same years, kind of those formative teenage and early adult years, Justin had grown up actually near the, near the border of Rwanda and Congo in a very small village in a rural area. And as you know, in the early 90s, violence came through that whole part of Africa. And when it came to his village, he just had to run. He just took off and ran. And eventually through a long series of events, he made his way to Kenya, where he lived in Nairobi for a period as a refugee. He went 10 years not knowing if anyone else in his family had survived. Eventually, he made his way from Nairobi to the States and eventually to St. Louis and to our church and to our community group. And what I appreciate about so much about Justin is that we see literally everything differently. When we read God's word, we see different things. 
when we experience day-to-day life, we experience it differently. And what I came to realize is that that was beyond value for me. That to share life with someone that sees it so differently had so many rewards. And so I hope as I talk about that, as you hear about this idea of sharing life this way, intergenerationally and cross-culturally, that, that, it, that it's at least a little bit appealing to you. Maybe it draws you in some. But I have to be honest with you too and tell you there's a catch. And the catch is this. It's really, really hard. It's really, really hard. And the reason it's difficult And the reason it's especially difficult in a city like Atlanta is that our kind of just natural tendency is to share life with people who are most like us. And in a city like Atlanta, there's a rich history, in fact, of people kind of grouping up with those who are most like them and sharing life that way. And let's be honest, there's a reason that swim and tennis communities work. It's because everyone there wants the same thing. It's the same reason that in Brookhaven, everywhere you look, they're building these mixed use developments. The bottoms have, uh, like the street level has restaurants and coffee shops and bars and boutiques. And the top has these luxury apartments where you can get a two bedroom, you know, thousand square foot apartment for $1,500, $1,800 a month. No families of five are moving into those things, but the young professionals just keep pouring in. And it's because it's easiest to do life that way. But the fact that it's easier to share life with those who we're most like, and it's difficult to share life the way that the gospel actually calls us to is good news for two reasons. First, it's good news because the only way it's possible is if it happens through the power of the gospel. The only way it's possible is if we personally are experiencing the love and the grace and the sacrifice of Christ in such a way that we are then able to replicate it as we interact with one another, that we're quick to repent and quick to forgive. And living that way is so rich in and of itself. But even beyond that, the good news is that if we can actually do this by the power of the gospel, it's so distinctive. It gets noticed. I guarantee you, if you went to lunch today with 10, 12, 15 people, if you were all different ages, if you were different races and ethnicities, if it was clear that some of you have more money and some of you have less, people would notice. If you went to lunch and saw that group, you would notice. And just seeing it at lunch likely is not going to change anyone's life. But what does begin to make serious changes, if people begin to live like that in a neighborhood, or people get involved in a school and begin to live like that, and over time, people begin to see and wonder, what is it that these people have in common? I hope mainly this morning that this passage is an encouragement to you. I hope it encourages you because the message that Paul is giving us is, you're free to remain where you are. You don't have to get on to the next thing to be somebody, to have an identity in life. You don't have to get into a new job. You don't have to make more money. You don't have to get married. You're significant because of your communal identity in the family of Christ now. You're also not defined by where you are now. Those things don't define you. And so you're free to get married if you want to. You're free to take another job that would make more money or less money. You're free to move into another neighborhood that's nicer or not as nice. You're free to have kids. You're free to let them grow up and become independent and leave. You're free to do all these things because your identity is not found in any of them. And what happens when we begin to live this way is we experience that our primary call is a call to follow Christ wherever he's placed us. And right alongside with that is a call to be a part of his people, the church. And when the church begins to function like this, when we begin to live this out, the church becomes like a preview of the coming kingdom of God. The community that we share becomes more and more like the community that we'll have for all eternity than the community that surrounds us day to day right now. And I'll tell you, I am convinced because I've seen it that everyone made in the image of God finds that attractive. 
that when they see it, they're drawn to it because it's what God has designed us for. And I'll tell you especially, it's especially attractive for those who would be willing to admit that they are exhausted by trying to create their own identity. And if that's where you are this morning, I would encourage you, take quite seriously Paul's words here. That you'll never find ultimate identity in any of those things, but that there's a much better alternative available to you. And the thing that's so counterintuitive about this identity of being a part of the people of God is all those other identities that we pursue, we have to get there. It's our work. We have to look right or do right or get the right job or whatever it is. But this identity stands alone because it's not by what we do, it's by what Christ has done. It's by the fact that he has given us a new identity, adopted us into his family and made us brothers and sisters to one another. And this morning, no matter where you are, whether you're walking with Christ, whether you're exploring Christianity, I hope that that draws you in and I hope that you'll experience it in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you. Uh, It's amazing, quite honestly, that the words that Paul would write to a church thousands of years ago are so amazingly pertinent for us. And Lord, I just pray for those who are here this morning. I pray for those who are your sons and your daughters that we would know what our true identity is, that we would not be confused, that we would not be drawn to follow pursuits that would lead us toward being defined by other things. Lord, I pray especially for those here this morning that don't know you, that you would bring them into your family, that they would be willing to give up the pursuit of other identities and that they would come and be welcomed as your son or your daughter into this family of the church. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.